Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Michelle Thieu and I'm the Executive Director at the Middle East Institute. Let me welcome you on behalf of MEI and um, Abba Ibn Institute at the Interdisciplinary Center Herzliya to our event today. Collaborating with partners across the globe and building networks of research, discussion and shared ideas is very much MEI's goal this year. 2020 may have had its challenges, but it opened the way for us to speak more to academics and like-minded research institutes across the globe, and AEI was one of them. Today's discussions carried across the Zoom platform and very much dependent on technology, ties in well with our theme of navigating the technological superpower competition. For countries like Singapore and Israel, where innovation is key to our staying ahead of the curve, navigating the competition becomes imperative. I expect a lively time this afternoon as we challenge, discuss, and agree to disagree on a topic that none of us can afford to ignore. Let me now introduce MEI's Chairman Bilahari Kausikan and AEI's Chairman Ron Prosser, both seasoned diplomats from small states surrounded by larger neighbors. I would add that Bilahari and Ron are also old friends, as Singapore and Israel have been Ooh, since Singapore's independence. Navigating an international arena where national interests inevitably come into play as countries jostle for space, a voice and influence is nothing new to either of them. And I cannot think of two better individuals to open our event today. Join me therefore in first welcoming Bilhari Kausikan and then Ron Prosser. Bilhari. Oh, thanks, Michelle. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. It gives me Great pleasure to speak to this webinar jointly organized by the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore and the Abba Eban Institute in Israel. And the pleasure is even greater because the Abba Eban Institute is headed by my old friend, Rob Prosor, who was once my counterpart in the Israeli Foreign Ministry and stole quite a number of horses with me. Anyway, let me get straight to the point. I want in this opening remarks to set some context for your discussions. Since nobody has logged on to listen to me, I will be brief. I have three points. First, it is abundantly clear that the Biden administration is not going to fundamentally change the Trump administration's approach towards China. What we can expect is that the process by which policies are made and communicated will be more orderly, but there will be no basic change in the trajectory of US-China relations. The reasons for this are obvious, but bare recapitulation. There is a bipartisan consensus in the US on being tough with China. To advance his domestic agenda, and his domestic agenda is his priority, Mr. Biden needs Republican support, and his margins in both Senate and House are paper thin. He's not going to rock the boat on China, and in any case, I don't think he wants to shift course on China, even if he could. Neither does Beijing want to change the trajectory of its relationship with the US. It hopes for a more stable relationship, but that's a different matter. With the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party this year and the crucial 20th Party Congress next year, Beijing does not want to look weak. For China, as much as the US, domestic political considerations are key. So the room for maneuver for third countries like Israel and Singapore is limited. Limited, but there is still room for maneuver. No country is entirely is ever entirely without agency, but our maneuver space is not overly large and we should recognize that. 
beyond the, Amer beyond the American politics of China policy, there is a consensus among all major economies that certain aspects of Chinese behavior are unacceptable. The concerns are not identical and the intensity which concerns are held varies, but there is no major economy that is without some degree of concerns. And many of these concerns converge on one aspect or another of technology. This is also to be borne in mind as we try to position ourselves vis-a-vis -vis the US and China. Second, the Biden administration has made by, clear by word and deed that it wants to work closely with American allies and partners. This is all to the good by the best emphasizing that the corollary to this is the expectation that American allies and partners should also work more closely with America. In other words, while Mr. Biden will be more polite about it than Mr. Trump, he is no less transactional in his own way. Expectations of allies and partners are high. A related point is that while the Biden administration is less hostile than the Trump administration towards multilateral institutions and international rules, I don't think anyone should have any illusions that multilateral institutions and international law are only a few among the many tools in the toolkit of American statecraft. They are not the entire toolkit. They will be used or not used as appropriate, and we should not assume that American policymakers will instinctively reach for these particular tools as their first preference. The American attitude towards multilateralism and towards international rules has always been ambivalent across many administrations of both parties for a very long time. Trump was an extreme case of a general tendency. Third, to position ourselves to our best advantage or to minimize disadvantage, we should understand the nature of US-China competition clearly. War is highly improbable because of nuclear deterrence. And I think theories such as the so-called Thucydides trap are just silly. The threat of mutually assured destruction kept the peace between the Soviet Union and the US for 40 odd years. And that's why we call their competition the Cold War. Nuclear deterrence will keep the peace between the US and China. This does not mean that their competition will not be intense and may well spill over into kinetic proxy conflicts as US-Soviet competition did during the Cold War. But US-China competition is not a new Cold War. That is an intellectually lazy trope. The US and the Soviet Union led two separate systems that were connected only at their margins. The primary interest they had in common was to avoid mutual destruction. US-Soviet competition was over which system would prevail and replace the other. By contrast, the US and China are both vital and irreplaceable components of a single global system. In fact, they, together with other major economies such as Japan and Europe, they are the system. US-China competition is not about one system replacing another, but ab about dominance over a single common system. There are obviously important differences between the US and China, but we should neither exaggerate nor downplay these differences. It has been a very long time since anyone could credibly hope or fear that the communist system would replace the market system. All economies are today mixed economies, distinguished from each other primarily by the different balances between political control or regulation, which comes to much the same thing as political control and the market. I'm of course setting aside moral differences between China and the US and focusing only on the structure of their economies. 
Furthermore, and most crucially, the US, China, and all other economies that collectively make up the single global system are bound together by, are enmeshed within a web of supply chains of a scope, density, and complexity never before seen in history. This makes it very improbable that either the US or China will be able to entirely disentangle themselves from this dense and intricate web of supply chains. Complete across the board decoupling is as improbable as China creating a complete alternative system. Although selective decoupling in specific, mainly technological domains has already occurred. For example, the internet is already largely divided and the same may occur in 5G or cryptocurrency. But the larger point is that this web of supply chains serves as an instrument of their competition, even as it shapes and conditions their competition. And this is particularly so in some technology domains. And I'll end with an example of this more complex sort of competition. We all know that the semiconductor supply chain is particularly intricate, and it is a very serious Chinese vulnerability because all the most crucial nodes in the semiconductor supply chain are held by the US or its allies. But China is 40% of the global semiconductor market. You cannot completely cut out the companies of your allies or your own companies from 40% of the market without fatally hurting those companies and yourself. Among US allies, the geopolitical stakes in Taiwan and South Korea have been enhanced because of their particular importance in semiconductor supply chains. But while Taiwan and South Korea are almost totally dependent on the, on the US for their security, they are also the most exposed and vulnerable of US allies and partners. Now, how all these complexities will work out is anyone's guess. But I do not think we should be daunted by complexity because in complexity is the promise of greater agency. If only we have the wit to recognize the opportunities and the courage to use them. And I'll now shut up and let you all get on with your discussions. Thank you for listening to me. Okay, let me, let me hand over to Ron. It's always enjoyable to hear from him. So Ron, you, you have the floor. Thank you, Michelle. And, uh, Thank you, my good friend, Bilahari. Uh, I'm really, uh, in the sense, it's always, uh, you always challenge me because uh, after you speak, I have to, uh, I have to, you know, be on the front line. So you started by saying the U.S. is not going to change most of its policies on China. Well, in the Middle East, I can tell you that uh, I think uh, everything is changing. And uh, and it's really uh, something that uh, we see that comes from an ideology and a feeling that uh, this administration is taking the big aircraft carrier called the United States of America and shifting it uh, towards Iran. Uh, and when I take Israel and Singapore, we have to navigate like two speed, small speedboats between a couple of aircraft carriers. Uh, I would have said the American aircraft carrier and the Chinese aircraft carrier, because the Chinese don't have an aircraft carrier yet. I have to find another analogy. But the idea is how small countries, and Bilal, you put it very well, 
we have to see how we can really uh, influence what's happening in our region because we all, and I think it's very natural, think, uh, and I think rightly so, that we understand our neighborhood uh, and the delicacies uh, better than people looking from the outside. But the point here is that uh, the shift towards Iran has uh, huge effects because the whole neighborhood is looking. And when I say the whole neighborhood is looking, it means that the neighborhood is basically saying to itself, just a second, uh, we have to live in this area. We live, have to live in this neighborhood. And if there's a shift, we have to make sure we get our vital interests, national security interests uh, covered. So you see trends uh, now of the Saudis beginning a serious dialogue with the Iranians. Uh, not, uh, not surprising. Uh, you see uh, uh, Israel, uh, in the sense, making a clear message, sometimes too clear. I think uh, small countries have to be ambiguous in the way they operate. I think it gives them an edge, but uh, also giving a clear message. Okay, you are the United States of America, you're our biggest ally. But on things that pertain to Israel's national security interests, we are not going to be part of this agreement. So don't expect us uh, to play ball all the time on things that we see uh, as very vital for us. Uh, now, we also have the Abraham Accords, which were paradigm shift. Now, when you look at the Abraham Accord and you try and think long term, you basically see that this is a, a very, very sensitive because the countries that did the move towards Israel, the Gulfies, and you see the amazing cooperation between Israel and the Gulfies and the Saudis under the radar screen, especially with the Saudis, you understand that they have shifted in understanding that Israel is part of the solution, not part of the problem. And the minute they internalize this, the whole posture changes. But there's a big difference. We've seen a lot being done under the radar screen for many years. Uh, very few went above the radar screen and took, uh, did the outing. What happens when now there's a crisis? Uh, will they go back? Do they feel that the United States of America under this new administration Basically, he's going to give them aerial cover in parentheses uh, to move forward, other countries to join. Uh, I don't think that's a, that's a message that comes out from Washington at this stage. Uh, we saw something, and I want to connect to what Bill Howley said on the decision of the F-35s. I have to say that I'm saying it not in hindsight. When the decision was made to reassess I uh, went publicly and I wrote about this and I said, uh, the US is going to, at the end of the day, agree to the F-35s uh, for one reason and mainly one reason. Lockheed Martin's factories are both in California and in Georgia. Surprise, surprise, those are democratic states, uh, working places. So leave the politics aside. I'm connecting to what Bill Harry talked about both in the, uh, in the House and in the Senate, clearly something 
that this administration is focusing on. Uh, this, when I talk about navigating uh, Israel and uh, Singapore, uh, you guys would talk, but Israel has to navigate between uh, the United States and China. And where does this navigation really stop? It stops when decisions have to be made in what direction we are going. Okay, so on certain issues like cyber, the point is very, very clear. Israel will not. But we have a small states to do as much as we can to defer from reaching the point of decision. Hence, uh, it's a Western way of thinking uh, that basically looks for results, basically says there has to be a solution and we have to make decisions. Why? Not necessarily. Sometimes it's in our national interest not to reach the point of decision because it allows us flexibility. And it's uh, crucial for a country like Israel, a small country, uh, to navigate between uh, uh, two superpowers in the sense uh, where it's very clear that if you push Israel, uh, Israel has one clear and, uh, and trusted ally, and that's the United States of America. But when we see China here, and we see China in, in this region, not just with soft power, not just with COVID, not just on the numbers and the statistics on what happens in imports and exports from the Gulf to China. And we see the Chinese also, now, I mean, it was a bit exaggerated on the you know, 25 year contract with the, with the Iranians, because the Chinese, in the sense, uh, have a lot of interest in the Gulf for the Saudis and others. But the point here is the message to the US is uh, okay, sanctions, not sanctions. You have to understand that we, China, that we as China, are opening up uh, towards uh, Iran, and you won't be able to really control that. Uh, we see in our region something that is important that if there's a rift between the US and Russia, it has huge effects on, on us, and especially on the issue, on the Iranian issue. Why am I saying that? You need Russia in order to deal with the spent fuel uh, out of Iran. You can't have Russia. I mean, Russia, there's no, uh, no free lunches here. So in the sense, the Russians won't move uh, if you don't cooperate with them. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going in that direction in the Russian-American relations. And we are, in the sense, in the middle. And we have to also, and it's a point that is really crucial that I don't think uh, people have thought about it. I want to raise it here. The problem is with agreements, written agreements. We were used in the past when uh, focused on the United States of America. When a president decided something, then the commitment stood uh, clear. Uh, we see differences now uh, where American commitments on the international agreements uh, are basically changing. And uh, there's no guarantee anymore that those international agreements will be honored. Uh, I want to take you to a uh, Obama basically abandoning the European interceptor. You remember site EIC, the missile defense complex in Poland, basically 
leaving the pose and the checks uh, in the cold. Uh, the whole policy towards Cuba, look at the shift from, from uh, Obama to Trump and who knows what's going to happen with Biden. You see the US returning to negotiations table with Iran. So you sign an agreement, you come out of agreement, you go back to an agreement. Uh, the F-35s that I mentioned, uh, the official declarations uh, that from an Israeli angle are super important of George Bush after uh, the disengagement with Ariel Sharon on uh, recognizing that in light of the realities on the ground, it is unrealistic of Israel to uh, return to the 1967 lines. Uh, well, that doesn't, uh, you pay basically in cash on guarantees. Uh, so in the sense, we as small states have to understand that yes, we have allies, but we also have to be able to uh, understand that we have to take care of ourselves and rely on ourselves on issues that pertain to our national security. Now, all this is happening, you know, on the backdrop of an intensive competition for technological superiority. And, uh, you know, we in Israel are always uh, ready to talk about qualitative military edge. But uh, I think we're beginning to hear from our allies, the US uh, QT, qualitative technological edge. What do you guys think in Israel? that if, they, if someone comes over to Palo Alto and we tell him go home, he can come to Arcelia and get what he wants. Well, surprise, surprise, guys, you have to recalibrate. So in the sense, uh, I think that uh, small countries, and we are small, but I think we are very effective. Uh, we have to find ways, and Bilari mentioned that I want to, don't want to belabor on the issue of technological edge, uh, both on the microchip issues, uh, the countries that are producing them. Uh, and in essence, we have to be able to navigate in a way that uh, will allow us to have our country benefit uh, from, uh, you know, I take China and the US in the region, uh, understanding the huge, huge, potential of uh, China. And in addition, when I talk about Israel, uh, and there's a discrepancy here, the feeling in uh, China, they don't have a baggage like the Europeans have towards Israel or Jews. On the contrary, uh, it's a positive attitude. And we have to find ways in order to basically uh, continue this relationship, which is strategically important for us. Last but not least, to give you an example of what I'm saying on using opportunities, the United Kingdom and Simon, uh, the United Kingdom after Brexit can sign agreements. They're not bound by the United, the EU anymore. We are compatible on certain uh, areas uh, very relevant to the United Kingdom. This is something we should push forward uh, as a small country understanding the opportunities that are there uh, in the world. So uh, my point here is, uh, in Germans, they would say klein aber fein. So we are small, but fine. 
Thank you. Thank you very much, Ron. Uh, that was very interesting. Let me now hand over to Gore, who will take over the next uh, segment of this uh, event. Thank you very much, Ron. And Gore, I hand over to you. Thank you very much, Michelle. And thank you, and many thanks to our two chairmen for their opening remarks. I'm Gotar Aliakhin, and I'm the new executive director of the Abe Bin Institute. And I'm looking forward for further discussions and cooperation with uh, Michelle and our friends from, from Singapore. Uh, for the remaining of the discussion, I'll be playing your host, moderating the, the discussion, uh, which is jointly designed by our team members from both institutions. Um, just before we continue, I'd like to say that the subject of today's discussion, uh, navigating the technological superpower competition, uh, will surely resonate not only with those in political and computer sciences, but it will make a lot of sense also to those who work on and serve in areas of defense and national security. I can testify so myself, having just recently completed a period of about eight years in the IDF Operations Directorate as head of strategic wargaming. Now, the combination of advanced technologies of all sorts, together with the so-called great power competition, as mostly referred to in the American parlay, is much debated issue in halls of political power and military command, but nonetheless, it's still quite, a, it still possesses or still has a lot of ambiguity into it, and even an air of mystery, and to be honest, sometimes even an embarrassment in view of this uncharted territory that we would like to, and the complexity that we would like to unlock today. So I'm confident enough to assure all our speakers and participants how relevant is the discussion of today, and how persistent is the need to unlock that complexity that also Ambassador Bilhari referred to um, that our subject presents today. And hopefully by the end of today's proceedings, we'll be, have, we'll be able to draw some practical conclusions for national security, diplomacy, and perhaps even more ambitiously for our nation's respective grand strategies. So we've heard um, the two opening remarks by Ambassador Bilhari and Ambassador Poussol that help us to frame the discussion, and we should now dive deeper further into the subject. And our keynote speaker is Professor Simon Chesterman, the Dean of the Law Faculty at the National University of Singapore. As a leading academic with a vast body of scholarly work, Professor Chesterman is, a well, is well positioned to guide us through a subject that up until a few years ago might, have, might otherwise have sounded as if taken from science fiction films. But today, with less fiction and much more science, we need to address questions on artificial intelligence, uh, personhood, robotics, and their legal status. Uh, so Professor Simon Chesterman, up to, up to 15 minutes. The floor is yours, please. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to join this, this distinguished group. And I will try to be within 15 minutes. And if it looks like I'm going to go beyond that, please just cut me off. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a ruthless chair myself, and I respect ruthless chairs. But maybe, maybe before I get into the, the, the meat, I, I do want to connect what I'm going to say to the opening remarks by Bilahari and Ron. Uh, and I say this as an Australian who 20 years ago was living in New York uh, around the time that uh, the EP3 spy plane incident happened, which was 20 years ago this month. Uh, and many of you will remember that. Some of you might not remember it. You might be too young. Uh, but around the start of the George W. Bush administration, there was discussion about whether, as Bilahari, I think quite rightly, dismissed the idea of containing China today, 
there was serious discussion about containing China 20 years ago. Uh, and the EP3 spy plane incident became a focal point. There was serious discussion about a new Cold War. Uh, and then, of course, September 11, 2001 happened. Uh, and, and I say that because it's relevant not only because of an anniversary, uh, but because of the impact it had on small states. And I'll include Australia as a maybe small to medium-sized state. Uh, but back 20 years ago, certainly for Singapore and Australia, uh, if forced to choose between their political security ties to the United States and their economic interests in China, the choice would have been very clear. Both would have gone with the United States. Uh, they would have preferred not to have to choose, but if pushed, would have gone with the United States. Today, uh, we really hope we're not forced to choose. Uh, and it would be much harder, certainly under Trump, but even under Biden. So that's one point of connection. And then on this question of, of technological uh, opportunity, and I think both Israel and Singapore are poised to take advantage of the opportunities of the digital revolution, um, we nonetheless confront a, a challenge, uh, which is that both countries are essentially rule takers, uh, that this space is dominated by major players. Uh, the European Union, outside its, uh, its, even its economic clout and certainly its technological clout, has played a major role in setting global norms for want of any competition. Uh, so in areas like data protection, uh, and now regulation of artificial intelligence, one of the most important players is the European Union in a regulatory sense, while in a capacity sense in technological advancements, it's really the United States and China that play the key role, uh, but both adopting very different approaches. The US in contradistinction to the European human rights led approach, America is very much market dominated uh, with technological companies leading the way. Uh, whereas for China, it's very much a state interest or a sovereignty model. Uh, where, as, as we heard Bilhari sort of touched on, the idea of a fragmented internet, data localization provisions that uh, China imposes on its own uh, population and people resident within China uh, do run the risk of a bifurcated internet, uh, which would undermine much of the opportunity for uh, globalization and integration that, that was precisely the point of the information superhighway. So what I'm going to be talking about now in uh, the approximately 13 minutes, I think, or no, maybe 11 minutes that I've got left, is a, a kind of projection forward, some of the legal issues that uh, we might confront today, but may certainly have to confront in the future. And just to liven it up, I'm going to include some slides. If you are very keen, there is an article that's based on this, uh, that this presentation is based on, but I'll go through it pretty quickly uh, to give you a sense of, of some of the possibilities in this area. And I'll start with just a framing device, which is that um, uh, later this year, I think in June, uh, in Britain, the 50 pound note will be the last of the British currency to go plastic. Uh, and so two years ago, there was a competition, who should be on the face of this note? Uh, astonishing, the result was not poundy McPound face, which is what I thought would happen. Uh, rather, it was Alan Turing. So Turing is famous, of course, for his role in computer science, uh, the manner and circumstances of his death, but probably in the popular imagination, uh, he's best known for the test that bears his name as to whether a computer is truly intelligent. Uh, this was based on a 1950s game called the Imitation Game, uh, where a man and a woman would be in a separate room, uh, and those in the, uh, the first room would have to try and guess whether certain messages were being sent by a man or a woman. Uh, and Turing posited that if you replaced one of these with a machine, uh, we might plausibly say machines were intelligent when we couldn't tell the difference, when we couldn't tell whether it was a machine or a person answering. Now, there were some efforts to try and pursue this. One of the most prominent 
were uh, lists of um, uh, list processing language programs like ELISA, which pretended to be a therapist. Uh, and essentially, this was a, a pretty simple program that would just reformulate questions, send them back to you. Uh, so when the person says, uh, my boyfriend made me come here, Eliza says, is it important to you that your boyfriend made you come here? Uh, if Eliza doesn't understand, then it would just ask another uh, a pretty general question like, what's the connection, do you suppose? So these days, computer scientists don't take these tests pretty seriously. Uh, and indeed, as a measure of, uh, of whether in machines are in fact intelligent, uh, the Turing test has pretty much fallen from favor, at least in, the, um, uh, in computer science. Um, but I'm raising it as a question because one of the challenges moving forward as machines become faster, more autonomous, more opaque, we're going to have to work out who is responsible for the decisions that they take uh, and whether there is indeed an argument that at some point in the future they might in fact deserve personality. So why are we asking all these questions? At least why are lawyers like me asking these questions? Well, the first and most prominent reason is so that there's someone to blame when things go wrong. Uh, so this is yesterday's uh, Guardian newspaper. I assume this was news in Israel as well. Uh, we had another uh, autonomous vehicle kill uh, its passengers. Um, now, more than a million people die in traffic accidents every year, the vast majority because of human error. Uh, but we get a disproportionate interest on the part of the public uh, when it's a, an autonomous vehicle that crashes uh, because there is this fear, this, this concern, uh, who is responsible? Uh, so that's one reason we might want to have legal personality for artificial intelligence systems. So we've got someone to blame. But a second reason we might want to think about that is so that we've got someone to reward. AI systems increasingly uh, produce art. They generate value. They're arguably creating patentable inventions. Uh, who should own these products if the AI system goes far beyond the capacities of the human programmer? So these are two reasons why we might want to think about uh, legal personality someone to blame when things go wrong, someone to reward when things go right. Uh, but a third possibility uh, will arise shortly. Uh, all of this used to be theoretical. Then this is um, uh, Sophia in 2017, Saudi Arabia granted Sophia citizenship, quote unquote citizenship. Now, this is a bit of a gimmick. Sophia is essentially a chatbot with a face, uh, but it led some people to take more seriously the idea of legal personality for AI systems. Uh, in the same year, the European Parliament said that maybe legal status might be necessary so that you can blame them, again, when things when they go wrong uh, or when they're making autonomous decisions or interacting with people. Um, so these two reasons, uh, someone to blame, someone to reward, broadly reflect two traditional ideas of legal personality. So someone to blame when things go wrong, that's an instrumental reason, and that's the reason we give legal personality to corporations and other what are called juridical persons. In terms of someone to reward, that's really recognizing that we tend to value human life in all its forms and you don't have to sort of prove, you don't have to go through a Turing test to prove that you're a human. The mere fact of being a human gives you plenary rights under most legal systems. It wasn't always the case. We used to have slaves in some jurisdictions, women are still treated as inferior citizens. Uh, many jurisdictions, there are limits on the rights of children, but broadly, humans are treated uh, equally, or at least should be around the world. There is, however, a third reason we might want to start thinking about legal personality. Uh, and that's in the event that machines ever become sufficiently real, uh, that they take it upon themselves to assert legal personality, the kind of Blade Runner scenario here. Uh, and so one reason we might want to think about legal personality is to shape or constrain behavior in the event that a superintelligence emerges. 
Uh, and as the chair said, this is at the moment confined to the fringes of, uh, of science fiction. Uh, but one of the misconceptions many people have about AI, what's called the Android fallacy, is the idea that if AI ever really emerges, it will be human level and operating in sort of humanoid form. Uh, and there are many science fiction authors who are to blame for this. Uh, but the reality is, if we ever get to the point where an AI system is as, as intelligent as, say, a dog or a dolphin, it's not going to go from there to low-level intelligent human and then slowly make its way up towards Einstein or someone else. Once it gets to that point, there is a real danger of an explosion uh, and, uh, and an AI system that is vastly more intelligent and potentially vastly more powerful than us. So the paper goes through this in detail. I don't propose to. There's natural and juridical persons, natural persons. We're given uh, rights. Many jurisdictions have various formulations of endowed by their creator. Juridical persons, we have corporations. It's not only corporations. We also have uh, religious organizations are often given personality. Uh, in New Zealand, there's a river. The entire ecosystem of Ecuador was given legal personality. And a lot of this is really a gimmick to get around standing requirements to give individuals the rights to uh, act and, uh, and to protect those institutions. But um, one of the vehicles, one of the reasons why instrumental personality might be a, a reason is that it could give us a means of addressing that accountability deficit people worry about. In the event that an autonomous vehicle crashes, who should we sue? Uh, who should pay? Uh, or if something goes wrong, who can we blame? Uh, and so there's various discussions about uh, the possibility of pursuing that in a legal context. The short answer I'll give you is I don't think any of these hold water. Uh, I don't think any of this is necessary in order to address alleged liability gaps. Put simply, what happens in the case of autonomous vehicles, for example, at the moment, if I crash into you because I'm driving negligently, you can sue me. If I injure you because my car blows up, you might be able to sue the manufacturer. As cars become more autonomous, what we're essentially going to see is a shift from the first situation to the second. And eventually cars might not have steering wheels at all, in which case we'll essentially be moving from driver liability to product liability. None of this is particularly new uh, in law. Uh, it's a little bit more complex in the area of criminal law. And there tends to be a bit of an obsession on the part of some theorists writing about robot punishment uh, and the idea of decommissioning or destroying robots. Uh, but again, I don't think any of this really holds water. Uh, and if people are particularly interested, you can read the article. I'll put a link in the chat uh, or we can talk about it in conversation. Um, but the second reason why we might want to think about legal personality uh, is whether AI systems are not merely, it's not merely useful to hold them to account. They might be, there might be an argument that they should actually be entitled to something because of what they can do. Um, I've already mentioned the Android fallacy. Uh, the problem with this kind of approach is that it hasn't worked in the past. There have been various efforts to uh, recognize the, the rights of non-person uh, entities that demonstrate moral sensibility, capacity similar to humans. Uh, and some ethicists have gone so far as to say that the moral worth of a chimpanzee might be greater than a severely brain damaged human or even an infant human. Uh, but none of these have really been embraced in legal systems around the world. Uh, the conclusion at the end of a whole series of lawsuits in the United States on this question uh, was that it might be arguable that a chimpanzee is not a person. The hope was that we could at least recognize that it was more than merely a thing. A point I'll come back to towards the end. Um, what we're really looking at here is what machines are versus what they can do. Uh, and one of the reasons why this has become an issue in legal circles uh, is machine-assisted creation. 
Uh, now, there's a long history of this. Indeed, for a long time, it wasn't uh, recognized that photography was a meaningful art form. All you're doing is pressing a button. And it took this photo of Oscar Wilde going all the way up to the US Supreme Court before photography was recognized as a creative art. Uh, jump forward to today, many of you will have seen this, the world's most famous selfie. Uh, there was a pretty rich argument about whether a photographer could claim credit for a photo that was taken by a macaque. Uh, in the end, the law was upheld, traditional law. Uh, the photographer won his case, uh, but he agreed to donate some of the proceeds, I think about 25% of the royalties, to preserving the crested macaques. This was pretty much across the board, the position, uh, until we had a case in China um, about a year and a half ago, uh, where Dreamwriter uh, was uh, recognized as the owner of a, um, essentially recognized as the owner of an article that it had automatically written. This is a machine created by Tencent, uh, and it was found that its copyright had been infringed. So there is a move here in terms of recognizing the creation of, uh, of um, non-human entities uh, as something attributable to a non-human entity, but we haven't quite gone so far as to formally recognize that yet. The last reason we might want to at least think about this is that if AI ever reaches human intelligence, it won't stop there. Uh, and so again, in the paper, we, I talk about um, different reasons we might want to think about this. Uh, the AI takeover is the extreme case, but there are real dangers of misalignment of values uh, where a machine, for example, is taught to play chess or make paper clips. Uh, and if that instruction is not given carefully and the machine is all powerful, uh, it might interpret its instruction uh, in that the, the primary obstacle to it either winning chess or making paper clips is the prospect that it could one day be turned off. Uh, and so its first motivation would be to try and make sure that that never happens. Um, how do we stop this? One method would be to control AI to try and ensure that there is an off switch. Um, but an alternative approach is actually to think about whether there are ways in which we can align its values with ours. Uh, I won't go into Asimov in this context, but if you did embody, if you did embed an AI system within a legal system, endow it with rights and obligations, there is at least a semi-serious argument that this might be part of creating within it a reflective equilibrium that could align its values with humanities. Uh, and I mentioned the position of slaves and women in the past, one reason for hope here is that almost all legal systems, as they have expanded the notion of legal personality, it's tended to continue expanding rather, to, rather than to contract. Uh, and so there are two possible outcomes. Either we might be included within that expansion if AI ever does uh, surpass us, or at least like the chimpanzees in those New York cases I touched on, it might not regard us as equals, but at least regard us as more than things. Um, so the conclusion, um, is, and the short answer certainly today, should we give AI legal personality? No, it's too, it's too simple and it's too complex. It's too simplistic an answer to the complex problem of AI systems. There's no meaningful category of AI that we could attribute personality to. Uh, it's also overly complex in that it assumes various moves in the direction of that sort of science fiction scenario uh, that we are not near yet. Uh, it bears thinking about, it bears preparation for, uh, but at the moment, uh, I don't think it's necessary. And I'll conclude, this is um, Mr. Turing himself coming to life uh, with uh, the, uh, the, the, the founder of much of what is today computer science. Uh, but again, my conclusion would be, we're not yet at the point of needing to recognize robot rights, but if we ever do, the question might not be so much whether we recognize their rights as whether they recognize ours. Uh, so this is a shameless plug for a forthcoming book, but I'll stop there and hopefully I'm not too far out of time.
Thank you very much, Professor Chesterman. It's a fascinating presentation that raises a lot of uh, critical questions, not only uh, in the legal sphere, but also in um, the, our human existence and also in the security uh, and even military context as well. Um, we will now move to our panel presentations, but before diving into that section, please allow me to state a few house rules that will make our, this part of the discussion uh, smooth and effective. In order to avoid unnecessary background noises, may I ask that only those receiving the floor later on will keep their microphones, microphones open. The rest should remain on mute mode. All speakers are kindly asked to keep their presentations in line with the time allocated to them. And if you wish to present a question to our panelists later on, please raise your virtual hand on Zoom and you will be perhaps given the floor later on to present your short question and not a long statement, obviously. Lastly, for the sake of convenience and the flow of the discussion, the summaries of our speakers' biographies can be found in the briefing paper sent to you all, sent to you all uh, earlier. Uh, three colleagues will present their work, expanding on the issues discussed thus far with, far, with uh, uh, supplementary perspectives and raising further questions to address. Hopefully by the end of it, we'll have the answers that we're looking for. Our first panelist is Dr. Dalia Afterman, the head of the Asia Policy Program at the Abba Eben Institute. With a rather unusual Australian-Israeli background, he takes a particular interest in Asian regional security and Chinese foreign policy. He will discuss the role of this of small states in the era of AI. Dalia, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Gore. Uh, first, allow me to add my own words of appreciation and thanks to our Singaporean partners, Ambassador Bilhari, Michelle, Alex, and the rest of the team. This, part of this event is part of an already important cooperation between our institutions, which I believe is only becoming more important. So to start, we all understand that the competition between the United States is becoming increasingly focused on technology and innovation. From 5G to 6G to semiconductors to health tech and AI, and more broadly to setting global standards for the internet and beyond. It seems that both superpowers have reached the conclusion that technological supremacy will play a decisive role in determining the outcome of the superpower race. Chinese initiatives such as Made in China 2025 and China Standards 2035 aim both to upgrade China's domestic technological capabilities and to position it as a global leader and standard setter in these areas. The United States under Biden aims to contain China's technological ascent while building its own technological leadership. Despite a shift in tone in many areas by the Biden administration, we see that on China and particularly on technology, the current administration is containing Trump's line, but it's taking a more systematic approach. Technology and innovation are now seen as strategic assets to be shared with allies and blocked from rivals. This new reality is placing many smaller countries in a new and unfamiliar position, having to navigate and promote their own interests while balancing the demands of the two competing superpowers. In my following remarks, I will try to describe some of the challenges and, as Ambassador Bilhari said, perhaps opportunities that middle powers face in the current dynamics. To open, I should note that, yes, the, the superpower competition is indeed intensifying, but there's no clear winner yet in this competition. This makes the role of middle powers very, very important. Both superpowers rely on middle powers help to help give them an advantage in critical areas. 
As doors are closing for Chinese companies in the United States, many are moving their financial hubs to Singapore to give them more flexibility, both in the region and globally. Israel, the startup nation for its part, is seen as an innovation powerhouse with cyber and other technology capabilities sought after by both superpowers. China has identified Israel in particular as a potential partner in its quest for technological self-reliance. We all remember that as the trade war between the United States and China was warming up in late 2018, Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan led the Chinese delegation to the Innovation Summit in Israel, which he headed together with Prime Minister Netanyahu. This was a very clear message to the Chinese investors that Israel is a strategic source for innovation and technology. And indeed, 2018 was a record year for Chinese investment in Israeli high-tech. But of course, this did not go unnoticed by Washington. Pressure is now growing on Israel to regulate and limit its engagement with China on key technological issues. Dual-use technologies in particular are seen as decisive in the superpower competition, but the challenge is how do we classify such technologies? We can find them anywhere in, in anything from microchips to autonomous driving systems to healthcare uh, and other areas. More broadly, we also seeing attempts by the superpowers to regulate the internet and other technological uses. These kind of protocols will shape our internet privacy and experience for years to come. As we know, the tech competition first reached a peak when the United States sought to counter China's technological advantage in 5G. The United States later launched a, uh, an effort, a campaign with its allies, with uh, partial or relative success with its allies in the West. But in places like the Middle East and Africa, we are seeing that China is moving forward and is becoming a dominant technological force. And we will hear more about this uh, in the next presentation. Over the last few days, we've heard about the joint effort by US and Japan to jointly develop the 6G network with the express intention to cooperate with third countries to gain dominance for future applications, services, and data. As mentioned earlier, much attention is given recently to sanctions imposed by the United States on semiconductors. This is an area that's dominated by the United States, but also by smaller countries such as Taiwan and the Netherlands. COVID-19 has led to a growth in demand and to a global shortage in this area. And we see leading companies like Taiwan's TSMC struggling to meet demand, but also keep market access both to China and to other areas. Israel too can find itself in a tricky position on semiconductors. Already a substantial portion of its trade with China is based on into microchips developed in Israel. And recently global companies such as Google and Microsoft have announced new Israel-based microchip programs. So taking all this into account, this whole situation, what insights can we gain for smaller countries? The first I would say is that technological and economic decoupling are not good for small and middle countries. Middle countries must work to avoid choosing sides. Middle countries should actually work to avoid being in a position of needing to make a choice. Instead, they should work together to reinforce the open globalized system, to create new avenues and frameworks for cooperation among themselves and including other uh, important powers such as India, Japan and South Korea. If it's necessary to fall on one side of the fence, the way the decision is implemented and communicated is not less important than the decision itself. And we should say that over the last few years, we've seen a few different models, a few different examples of the way middle powers and the way 
respond and react to superpower competition. For example, we've seen Australia choose sides very quickly uh, on the superpower competition, choose sides very clearly, and suffer economic sanctions from China. On the other hand, we have New Zealand, also a member of the Five Eyes, that followed many of the same decisions, but in a much uh, more low-key way. But in turn, it has expanded recently its FDA with China. Singapore has also demonstrated its own skills in managing superpower tensions in the savvy way that it handled the 5G uh, issue, for example. Finally, and this connects me to what Ambassador Bilhari said earlier, it's important to keep in mind that the current state of superpower competition can also create opportunities for, for middle countries to renegotiate their positions vis-a-vis -vis the superpowers. What do they get in return for deciding one way or another? What can the superpowers give in return for small powers support or lack of support for the other side? I think these are some of the issues that we should keep in mind moving forward. I'll end here, but I'll be very happy to continue uh, in the Q&A. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gdali. Thank you very much. And we now move to our second panelist, Dr. Alessandro Arduino, and I hope I pronounce his surname correctly, the Principal Research Fellow at the Middle East Institute of Singapore. While preparing for today's uh, meeting, I was very happy to learn that uh, Alex and I share some King's College affiliation together. And must also, one must also recognize that among his many uh, achievements, he has been appointed Knight of the Order of the Italian Star by the President of the Republic, which in British terms, uh, British equivalent terms, should have made us all address him as, as Sir Alex. So Sir Alex, I give the floor to you. 10 minutes. Thank you much, uh, Gour. I'm still waiting uh, from the horse. Uh, uh, but uh, knighthood has been okay up to now. I will say that uh, uh, I'm extremely pleased to be here today and I have to thank you, our colleague from Abaiban Institute uh, uh, for all the work that we have been doing together uh, during this year. Basically, uh, in my very short presentation, I want to make three points. One, what is the digital Silk Road? Two, how the country from the Middle East to East Asia are looking to balance Chinese uh, digital ecosystem with uh, United States security necessity, and then uh, what we are going to look uh, in the near future. So uh, as Gedalia just mentioned, the global trade, and we are used to that, become hostages of the confrontation, the friction between United States and China. Uh, I, I don't like, uh, as a security practitioner, to use the term war, even if it's a trade war, because I find it uh, uh, quite wrong. Uh, having said that, uh, what is the digital Silk Road? Uh, basically, uh, in the common imagination, is just the 5G component of the Belt and Road Initiative. That's not the case. Digital Silk Road overlap with China. Belt and Road Initiative, but it differentiated to the fact that mostly are Chinese private company that operate uh, uh, in the technology field. Of course, we can debate for hours, day or month uh, when the public hand finish and the private one start in China. But again, if you see just uh, the $28 million lapped on uh, Alibaba recently, can tell a different story about Digital Silk Road. Uh, the term itself uh, started to expand in uh, 2015, 
but uh, uh, it's been defined as a digital Silk Road uh, during the Ujian meeting in China in 2017. And quite interesting, one of the few countries that was working all together in framing the digital Silk Road definition was uh, the UAE, the Emirates. Uh, 5G is an important component of the digital Silk Road, but just uh, a small fraction of one of the five pillars of the digital Silk Road. 5G with uh, satellite connection, Beidou, with fiber optic cables, uh, uh, with uh, big data is uh, a part. Uh, the other pillar are e-commerce, e-finance, fintech, smart city, cybersecurity, and especially in the Gulf, for example, the cybersecurity part uh, with Chinese characteristic uh, is, uh, is quite welcome. And as uh, Professor Chesterman just mentioned, uh, in the race for AI, up to now we are looking at narrow AI that can still give to country the superpower and hedge, military hedge, financial hedge, geopolitical hedge, big data, is at the core. So whoever can grasp more big data for machine learning uh, is going to have an advantage in this uh, AI race. And of course, the expansion of the digital Silk Road from Middle East to East Asia uh, is going to give to China quite important advantage. So in my second point is how Middle East country and East Asia are going to have a balancing act. As uh, Ambassador Prozor just mentioned, uh, uh, not making a strategic decision is a strategic decision itself. And it's quite important, is how basically up to now, country from uh, the Gulf uh, to Indonesia and to Singapore are not quite keen in choosing a side. Uh, of course, US, if we look just for example at the uh, the few days uh, of the last term of uh, Mr. Pompeo time uh, during the Trump administration was pushing the clear network initiative, asking to all ally and front country to purge Chinese system, Chinese equipment, Chinese app. But quite interesting, if you compare East Asia with Middle East, you have some similarities. UAE, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, they are trying to differentiate their economy and digitalization is at the key of this differentiation. 2013 vision, uh, digital uh, smart city, uh, it's core part of uh, Middle East country in the Gulf to change from oil-oriented economy to the new economy. If you look at Indonesia, for example, uh, there is this ambition to become uh, the biggest e-market for all East Asia. But then if you have a, a comparison and you look at other two countries in these two parts, in these two different regions, one is Israel and one is South Korea. In Israel, China is not looking to sell. In Israel, China is looking basically to acquire technology, but then Israel need to balance this economic entanglement with China, with of course, with the security necessity with the United States. Similar South Korea, Again, it's a small country, but is a technological giant. Samsung is one of the biggest supplier of microchip to China, but at the same time, the necessity, security necessity are very clear in South Korea and where South Korea stands with the USA. Uh, of course, there are countries in the Middle East uh, who don't need this kind of balancing out, and I'm referring to Iran, that is linked directly to the, to the Chinese ecosystem, and there is not much chance to, to have different decisions. 
But then again, uh, if we look uh, exactly where uh, in AI race, in technology race, in navigating between these two superpower technology ecosystem, where really the rubber meets the road is the smart city. Developing a smart city requires integration of uh, sensor, big data, uh, analytical software, uh, AI, that China is at the moment uh, giving at competitive price. But at the same time, if we look, for example, at uh, connection, US just established a project to connect Indonesia with fiber optic direct to the United States. 16 kilometer of fiber optic line. And then just to shorter my presentation and to don't take much of the time, uh, I basically wanted to cancel my last statement. Uh, I wanted to say, uh, what is the worst case scenario? One country will be uh, in the necessity to choose between uh, two digital ecosystem. The worst case scenario will be a bifurcation. A bifurcation will mean different supply chain, not be able to buy microchip, not be able to have rare earth from one area or the other, but also will be different regulation, different standard. The simple fact that a mobile phone will not be able to connect in a center area. And then what I really wanted to delay from my presentation, and I'm not going to say, is that if we progress in this direction, we are going to witness a rise of a cyber iron curtain. But uh, Chairman Bilahari said that uh, the comparison with Cold War is uh, intellectually lazy. So I'm not going to say that uh, during my presentation and I will just end with that. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much, Alex. Um, before we can move to, the, to our last um, uh, panelist, may I remind all our participants, uh, encourage them to think and develop some questions to everybody and you uh, are encouraged to uh, raise your virtual hand and we will um, uh, give you the floor later on. Thank you, Alex. And now we move to our um, uh, last panelist, but certainly not least, our third and final one, Daniel Cohen, head of the policy and technology program at the Abba Ibn Institute. Daniel's research includes cybersecurity, cyber terrorism, with a particular focus on the use of internet and social media, um, by terrorist organizations, influence operations, and counterterrorism. Uh, an ex-combat soldier, present rower, and a promising scholar, Daniel has already shown impressive record of success in developing innovative ways to disrupt the malicious activities of some very nasty bad, bad people. So Daniel, over to you, 10 minutes. Thanks, Gaul. Thanks, everyone. I really enjoyed the discussion so far, especially Alex's last comment that he was supposed to delete regarding the cyber war. So it really relates to my presentation. And let me share the screen for a second. Everybody can see it? Great. So I will actually, if I need to give a, a title for my presentation, uh, it would be a superpower navigating the big tech companies competition. So it's a bit the opposite in, in my case. Uh, why we're gonna relate the a war against online terrorism uh, to this uh, fruitful and uh, best practices and a really interesting discussion, because I believe that what we see uh, regarding the war against terrorism 
in 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 near time it uh, uh, fulfills a technology that being used in dual use of technology into a civilian uh, aspects and not only military or governmental one and actually we saw in the last couple of years uh, the war against terrorism on the online side of it as like a playground where we saw the new tools were being used by different countries, superpowers, but also others. And it's really interesting to see in the upcoming years if we will see it more and more. We even saw it as an example in the war against COVID and especially emphasis on AI, for example, and also the use of big data for monitoring and reporting and detecting terrorism or uh, pandemic uh, issues. So first of all, I will uh, uh, divide my speak between the public space and the private space. Uh, I will only show examples uh, from the public space or from the open source. Uh, actually, we are heavily invested in research, what we uh, use it as a social media intelligence. What we do in the program, we mainly focus on terror organizations and try to combine between, let's call it a domain expert or country social expert and social expertise with data science and integrated with social network analytics. Our approach is a top-down and bottom-up. We're trying to use it for evidence-based research on open source and to find evidence regarding terror activity, but also to get insights and trends by doing so when we look at it from a bottom-up approach. Now, my first observation would be that uh, when we speak about the online war against terrorism, social media is not a substitute uh, to understand the basic motives of uh, terrorists, but it plays a critical role in shaping the identity and perceptions of many of the terrorist attacks that we saw in the last couple of years. And it goes, much beyond the scope of online incitement. Uh, we see also a lot of many common dominators and patterns. Uh, for example, uh, preparation to attacks using social media uh, to send farewell. We saw it in Israel and I will uh, provide more details on that uh, soon in my uh, presentation. And in generally, social media and instant messaging platforms offer interaction and engagement, and they are actually enablers of influence without uh, any uh, centralized leadership or organizational infrastructure. And we see it on an unprecedented scale. Uh, many of that is because of uh, unique architecture of uh, social media. But on the other hand, we do see uh, some of it being centralized. Uh, we see hubs uh, around influencers, uh, recruiters, uh, theological figures like clerics and uh, others. And we also see, especially in the Israeli case, but also in the war against ISIS in the last couple of years, the circles of empowerment when someone commits an attack and then we see uh, copycats that uh, join him half time and will follow him on the social media. So I will say it's like a mix between a centralized approach and a decentralized approach. But uh, to sum it up, the web offers alternative sources of uh, legitimacy uh, of traditional sources of authority. 
and plays a key role in the dynamic process of uh, radicalization. Now, I won't show today any of uh, a radicalization process, not in Southeast Asia, not in Israel, not in the Middle East, but I can tell you for sure that uh, uh, in our research, we see it and we can see it by time, the progress of it when we look uh, back, present, and try to predict maybe for the future using AI. Now, uh, as I said, I will um, use a couple of uh, showcases where we see different strategies, tactics, and methods by different countries uh, related to Israel, Southeast Asia, but also to superpowers, in this case, the United States war against ISIS. And I will start with uh, the wave of terrorism in Israel between uh, 2015 and 2017, and uh, many stabbings of the street, ramming, uh, less using of uh, suicide bombers as we saw in the past. But when we ana uh, analyze the terrorist attack characters, we see many common dominators uh, between many of the attackers. So many of them were young, single, not affiliated with any established terrorist organization, not with the Hamas or Jihadic Islamic movement. And actually most of them uh, didn't have any previous terror activity background. So we can see it as a decentralized network in a broader observation. Uh, if we don't see any political or organizational framework behind it, meaning uh, that the motivation in many of the cases is maybe a bit different from only looking at it as an ideological motivation to commit an attack. But one thing that jumped out, and again, when you look on the young people, many of them were under 18 even, some of them were even 15 and less, but the average was around 18. We see inspiration and motivation that came from online incitement on social media platforms. Uh, just one example you can see on the right side, two attackers killed uh, two Israeli uh, policemen. And you can see them like an hour before the attack, uh, posting on Facebook and saying the smile tomorrow will be much more, uh, will be more beautiful. And uh, you can see that as some kind of uh, a farewell before committing the attack. Now, there was many debates in Israeli uh, scholars, experts, and also uh, I believe, at least according to foreign media, by a, a security agency, how to deal with this phenomena. At some point, uh, there was an understanding that, okay, Israel is maybe uh, notorious in using cyber offensive tools, at least again, uh, by foreign media, but in this case, there's nothing that can be done if it's uh, people that live on the online world. So something else needs to be built here, uh, a mechanism that will be able to deal with this kind of uh, phenomena. And then we saw, I believe it was in uh, late 16, the start of the use of uh, big data analytics, but also the use of artificial intelligence uh, to try to understand the patterns and common dominators of uh, potential terrorist attacks. Uh, as we know, uh, and we saw, all of us saw it in the, the Tom Cruise movie. You can't arrest someone for an attack he didn't commit, but uh, from, again, at least from a uh, foreign media, they were able to uh, structure a list of potential uh, attackers. And they were received warns, uh, many of them to the families, to the parents, to do something with the kids. Some of it went into the Palestinian authorities. 
and they made those calls and it was able to reduce the number of uh, what was called back then spontaneous or inspiration attacks by uh, people that were living in the friction areas between the uh, Jews and Arabs in East Jerusalem or in uh, next to settlements and they did uh, this kind of spontaneous attack. So we saw here, uh, at least from the Israeli aspect, uh, a first time by the understanding that nothing can be done uh, and you can't shut down Facebook in, uh, in the territories or in East Jerusalem and using big data and uh, AI uh, to confront this kind of uh, terror attacks. In a different uh, showcase, the online war against ISIS, we started to see different things. Uh, I mainly um, was researching uh, two aspects. One of them was a counter-narrative campaigns by the State Department uh, and their co-partners uh, all across uh, the coalition, if it's in the Middle East or in uh, Europe, and their uh, interaction with the uh, civic society. And I will say that they were like, uh, working on a war that they can't win. The reason is that a terrorist attack, and I'm, I'm not trying to show this uh, picture as something that is centralized, but when you have influencer clerks, uh, social media experts that working for a terror organization and produce content each day in dozens of them, if it's videos, banners, posts, and so on, it's really, hard to stop it in one place because it will pop in again in other place. Some called it uh, walking the, the mole. But what we saw is a phenomena of a shiftment from traditional uh, social media accounts like Facebook and Twitter that also took part in it using uh, a high hashing and so on. And then we saw a move to more uh, encrypted and anonymic uh, platforms like Telegram, for example. And from then trying to uh, pop in into Facebook, Twitter, and so on, but also going into more exclusive forums like in the darknet and uh, other anonymic uh, forums that could afford it. So this is not a good uh, start point for counter-narrative campaigns using technology, in this case, uh, technology for marketing. And we saw the State Department uh, building those centers that were trying to fight a network by a network. And I will just go quickly, uh, one of the criticism that came from the inside and was actually leaked into a New York Times by a senior deputy at the, the State Department saying that it didn't work. It didn't work because we used outside content. It was very slow, centralized, reactive, not coherent. And it was like preaching to the choir. You can't uh, try to fight a network via network. Maybe it needs to be done by uh, from the inside. And if you want to go into the roots, maybe something else needs to be done here. So then we saw um, in the end of 16, we saw actually for the first time because it was uh, becoming operational back then, US Cyber Command starting to use cyber warfare tools to uh, confront this uh, phenomena of ISIS online recruitment. And then we saw them trying to get into the core of the people that were behind uh, the spreading of content by ISIS and recruiting people online. And a couple of things that they did was actually, as I said before, for me, it looked like a playground for uh, uh, using new tools that can be also be part of the superpower uh, cyber war, because we saw pretty much the same methods of operandi 
by the US Cyber Command against uh, Russian trolls or Russian uh, cyber uh, criminals uh, during the midterms in 2018. So changing password on uh, social media, that was uh, the easy part, uh, but they also uh, deleted Islamic State Battlefield video from the internet. They did it in some way uh, in a collaboration with uh, the tech companies, but sometimes they did it by themselves. They destroyed computer networks, destroyed servers, uh, for example, and spread malware to block jihadist access to data. Uh, also, they fought against uh, fake news and disrupted terrorist uh, cash transactions. Now, it was a joint cooperation, not only by the Cyber Command, the GCHU, five eyes were also involved, including the uh, Australian government. And uh, very interesting to see this maybe aggressive style of maybe even a cold war, as uh, Alex mentioned before, and not only the use of more softened tools like uh, social media and fighting a network by a network to counter narratives. So uh, to sum up this part, we saw uh, the use of big data and AI in the Israeli war against uh, uh, spontaneous terrorists during the 2015-2017. Same time, we saw counter narratives campaign, mainly by uh, State Department and also the use for, again, for the first time, at least uh, in, to the public eyes of the use of cyber warfare against a terror organization. And I would like to sum it up and wrap it up by looking a bit on the jihadist network in Southeast Asia. This is not part of our scope at the Institute, but very interesting findings I think we saw uh, during the years that many of the worlds when we were looking on a jihadist network or terrorist activity, we ended them in uh, Southeast Asia, mainly in places like Indonesia and uh, Malaysia and Philippines. And we saw in the last four years from ticking bombs to cyber hackers and uh, big data experts. And we also saw many of the radicalization process because we can see it on Facebook and on Twitter in a passive way without doing anything that is not uh, ethical or legally wrong, but only looking on open source intelligence. Um, one example is uh, Jamai Islamia. Uh, of course, we saw Jamai Islamia as a poor ISIS group in Indonesia being very active in the last year. Uh, we saw uh, attacks and arrests from the other side by the police of uh, supporters of them. One of the famous convicted terrorism actually, uh, clerics that uh, was behind one of the provinces that was leading one of the efforts of Jamai Islamia is uh, Bin Sef Fahim. Uh, very easy to see that he's now in jail actually because he was arrested again last uh, month with uh, 20 of his followers after a series of terror attacks in Indonesia and there was before and also after. Only we saw it in the last month, uh, two suicide bombers uh, that were related not actually to Jamai Islamia but uh, affiliates of them, uh, Jad. And you can see that the uh, Bin Sef Fahim is very active on social media. This we can see it as a more holistic, uh, centralized way. We see a lot of campaigns for releasing, and we can see all of his uh, YouTube videos online. And um, in different way to see it, we can see that he has many followers that still continue to spread radicalization online. Uh, of course, I didn't want to show any faces, but again, this is all uh, only using open source and what Facebook uh, provides to us to do so. In the end of the day, what is interesting to understand that 
a public figure like that has many followers and they have many followers also. It's a global effort because it never ends in one province or one country. And if we take it even further, there was, will also be links between different kind of systems or networks that have a correlation between them or engagement between them and will never end in one country or one uh, province. And we will always see a connection to other parts of the world and even uh, in the neighborhood, like we saw last month, uh, when we saw the indictment and the three maids actually from Indonesia that worked in uh, Singapore that were uh, convicted for uh, funding terrorism. And what was interesting there, just to sum it up, that when you read the, yeah, the court, at least what was published on one of the maids, you see that she was getting radicalized on Facebook online. At some point, she started to go into the more exclusive groups on Telegram. And then she shared this kind of uh, information uh, on Facebook to her followers. And at some point, we got really involved in it and started also to send money and to fund uh, terror activity in Indonesia. So in the end of the day, all of that uh, relates. What I can offer is a, a response that we were, we were trying to shape at the Institute. We say that there's a need of the government. There's a tools in the private sector, but actually the a civil sector or academic world can be some kind of uh, operator and to provide a lot of the platform to things that can be done, many of the more softened side, of course. The guidelines also can be, need to be part of the civic sector and the government. Uh, as uh, Professor Chesterman uh, related to, in the end of the day, there are a lot of ethical questions, what can be done and what not. And uh, the system futures, uh, some of them are COVID secret, the government can do it by themselves, but some of them is overt. We believe that can be done by uh, academic world, including R&D, and the academic world has a better access to the private sector where the technology can be led. And I believe that we, in this aspect at least of uh, counterintelligence, we need to see more features that come from private sector into the government sector. Uh, I believe that I, my time is ended, so I will uh, stop here. Thank you very much.